Hi, everybody, and welcome to the episode of Sisters in Colour, the podcast where we bring you amazing women of colour from around the globe who come on this platform to talk to us about how they see the world, how they're navigating the, um, their careers, how they're navigating their business. Today, I've got a kindred spirit in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. So I'm really excited uh, to dive deep into this conversation with the amazing Blossom. And I know you can't see her braids, but she's got these gorgeous red braids, which, you know, hopefully in a picture we can show you. Um, but, you know, they just really bring out her vibrancy. And, you know, and I'd love to introduce and welcome her to the podcast, Sisters in Colour. Welcome, Blossom. Thanks, Christine. Hi, everyone. Really, really good to be here. Excited to be here. <laughs> so, Blossom, can you start by telling our listeners, you know, who is Blossom? Yeah, I think um, it's a very interesting question. I think uh, the first thing I think of at my core is that I am incredibly passionate about people. Um, and and that really just means that I care about how people navigate spaces, how they um, who they are um, when they're with their families. And, and I've always um, cared about people. And, um, and so it, the first thing that you probably know about me is that I, 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 I give a shit. And, and that translates in, um, in every single part of my life. Um, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the places that I choose to be, the people that I choose to be with, um, the type of relationships that I have in my life um, they're all really just based on, on the fact that I, I, I'm incredibly, um, empathetic, um, intuitive, um, love people and, um, and love family, establishing connections, relationships. I love community. And so every, um, everywhere that I've, I've been, and I, my husband is in the defense force. So I get to live in, in every part I've lived in, um, nearly, um, majority of the states and everywhere I, I go to, I, I am drawn to the African communities, the African peoples and community in general. Um, I've been incredibly supported, um, not leaving close by to my family in Sydney, um, across, um, you know, New South Wales, Australia and, um, and communities is it crucial to who I am. Excellent, excellent. Tell us a little bit about your early life, you know, where were you born? What, tell us a bit about, you know, your, your upbringing and your family. Um, so I, um, I was born in Nigeria. Um, I'm Igbo, so I was born in Enugu State, um, eastern part of Nigeria. So I guess the first thing that you'd know about me is that um, we, uh, I'm the first of four, and I'm really trying to figure out how much to tell um, because there are a few nuances about, about a person. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you're born in war or if you're born post-war, um, the nuances are that you've grown with stories of war, right? Um, for me, um, I was born post-war. In fact, I was um, several decades away from war, which is a Nigerian civil war that happened mm -hmm. um, in, in, around the 1970s. Um, but those stories plagued me for several reasons because I am mm -hmm. a storyteller. I always read. In fact, I'd read since I was eight years old. Um, my aunties would tell you a story about me um, reading one of their favorite, they were at uni, three of my aunties were in a Nigerian university and they needed to read a book. Um, it's called Ifru by Flora Wampa. 
She's an incredible um, Nigerian writer who was writing before we even knew Chino Achebe as we know him today. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and they, couldn't, they couldn't be bothered to reading this book. And they gave an eight-year-old a university book about um, um, mermaids and um, all, the, all these very um, stories that you hear um, growing up uh, African. So about mm-hmm. mummy waters and or, or mermaids, as you would call them in English, in the English language. Or, yeah. Or um, I don't know if you have that in your culture, Christine, but uh-huh. of children who come and go. Uh, like we in, in, in the Igbo culture specifically, mm-hmm. um, we have this stories about children who were born and they reincarnate and they don't stay. And then you try and appease to the gods to bring them back. That's what the story was about. So imagine an eight-year-old okay. reading about, you know, this kind of spirituality that you don't really get to hear about in um, our, our African writing. So I read this story and I told, told it to them um, and they passed their assignments as a result. <laughs> so um, I don't exactly remember that experience, but I do remember the stories mm-hmm. about that experience. One of the things that always fascinates me about my Nigerian wonderful, vibrant community is how passionate and proud you are first and foremost to be yourselves. Where does that strong sense of identity, and I'll call it Nigerianism, where does that come from? Because I see it more in Nigerians than any other African really? culture. Like, you're, like yes, you, you guys have a very strong sense of who you are and you are Nigerian first and you are unapologetic about that. Um, you know, like if you, um, if you meet a Nigerian, they're not making an excuse for their place in the world. And that sense of confidence, where does that come from? That's interesting because I've never um, thought about it in, in the way that you've, you've, you've mentioned, Christine. But I, I think the first thing that you learn is, growing up in Eastern Nigeria is that um, as a Nigerian, as an Igbo person, um, I grew up in in my culture. um, And I, although I've been in Australia now for over 16 years, um, who I am is, is Igbo. Like there's, I'm incredibly proud and passionate um, about who I am and ensuring that, um, everybody else who've navigated these spaces like I am are either born in Australia, um, but with Nigerian heritage, um, has just, that we pass that down. Um, my husband is white Australian as well, um, but my children, um, we teach Igbo when we speak. Um, we, we speak, I teach them Igbo, um, and we eat, eat Nigerian food in our home. Um, okra soup is the favourite um, apparently it's, it's mom, it's mom's favorite, fam- my mom's famous okra soup. Like <laughs> it doesn't get better than that, but I think you, you do have to be proud in yourself. And I, I can, I can tell you, mm-hmm. Christine, that, um, over my journey here and trying to assimilate, um, I, I, I most certainly fought, um, all of those, like you would any young, um, African person navigating a space like Australia, like you do take on so many identities to fit in. Um, and so that's where some of my passions for inclusions really mm-hmm. started just from being an outsider and struggling to be part of 
the mainstream culture, mm-hmm. um, trying to fit in and trying to look um, as much as you can, like you, mm-hmm. like you're part of, you're, you're not different. Um, and so I can tell you that I have most certainly struggled with um, being different, but I have never mm-hmm. struggled really with who I've been. And I, I think mm-hmm. perhaps I was lucky to have sort of grown up in Nigeria um, Family and community have always been important to me. And I feel like perhaps that also contributed to, to that kind of grounding. Um, but I also always wanted to prove to people that um, no matter how liberal, uh, quote unquote, I would say my views are, um, in, especially if you compare it to, you know, um, to people who Africans who might be a bit more conservative um, with a lot of in- inclusion matters, for example, um, I would probably say that I have been um, very, very true to myself um, and really, 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 I guess, um, desperate to hang on and show who I've been. Um, I can say that I've been true to myself in that way. Mm. No, and um, so tell us a bit about um, Nigerian life. Like if I was, if you were to take me to uh, some of your favorite spots, like when you were growing up, what does that look like? Because I think one of the challenges people have is what the media portrays African countries to look like, right? And you always get the sense of stereotyping and you're kind of like, sometimes I look at places and I'm like, there's more to, you know, there's always more to tell. So what can you tell us a bit about what your early life was like in Nigeria? So if you took us on a journey to your childhood, what were some of your favorite places? What were some of your favorite things to do? Um, I think the easiest way to probably answer that, again, um, I was a child so um mm-hmm. between well i was until i was 10 years old i was able to um i had really strong sense of the of my um childhood um and those mm-hmm. were reading so a, a large community because my mom was the first daughter and and that meant mm-hmm. that all her sisters kind of came through our home and helped her to to care for her children. So that mm-hmm. sense of family and community. Um, but also leaning further into that, um, if you also look at how our, like the actual streets that I lived in, um, mm-hmm. I, I always joke that how I know the level of commitment that I have with a relationship um, with anyone that I know is whether I can go to their home and borrow salt. And it's not that I don't have salt in my home or that there is no Woolworths or Coles or Aldi around me. But that is the kind of idea of relationships that I had growing up is that mm-hmm. my neighbors would come to our home, go straight to our kitchen and get salt mm-hmm. um, and go back to their home. <laughs> um, I think for me, if there is something that I'm desperate to keep about um, our culture is, and, and mm-hmm. you hear me talk about community, community and relationships and and that's that kind of network because that's really crucial mm-hmm. to us as humans how we interconnect with um with one another our family structure um mm-hmm. and our societies and you know if you go through if you really think about covid and how we were impacted um during covid we lost that community connection people were desperate yeah. to to go out and talk to another human being um mm-hmm. 
and you know domestic violence all of those things increased during covid um for so many reasons i mean i can't tell you that it's very a simple linear um fix um but it, there are a lot of complexities around um our need for human connection um the reasons the reasons why we 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 seek um a community structure around mm-hmm. us and um and for me if i kind of take you back to my childhood um mm-hmm. it's you know the neighbor who's who makes my hair every every few weeks um mm-hmm. it's the <laughs> it's the stories that you hear from mm-hmm. my dad at night um when there is mm-hmm. a moonlight and there are no and there is no light um sometimes and you know mm-hmm. we all kind of hang out at the front of our hu- of our house and um mm-hmm. we hear lots of stories about all his travels my my dad was mm-hmm. um, very well traveled so and he mm-hmm. loved to tell stories about his um about his travels in the US and um and uh, Italy so mm-hmm. that's what, that was that and then of course between the ages of 10 and 16 i went to a boarding school mm-hmm. uh in nigeria and that was um and then after the boarding school um we sort of migrated so that story is a whole book on its own yeah it's a whole book on its own so when you migrated like so you migrated at the age of 16 yes. um and you segued in what was some of the i guess the leaving your your home country and going to a different a different place how did your parents how did your family how did you navigate that space for yourself at that age it's difficult um because my life was already extremely complicated by then so mm-hmm. when i was 14 mm-hmm. i lost my dad um my mom at the age of 8 um she left to the united kingdom so um there are a lot of complexities there and you know there are lots of families who at the time that i was growing up had the sort of mm-hmm. um uh structures so mm-hmm. i guess the first thing is my mom had a, a family member in the uk so um she got the opportunity to go and then she um firstly she went into study nursing and then the laws mm-hmm. kind of changed by the time she finished so she couldn't actually work um by the time she studied nursing thing um students got paid to to study nursing um but then you know the UK changed their laws she couldn't work when she finished so um there was a lot of really difficulty um for for mm-hmm. a, a young girl at the time um kind of struggling with boarding school but also um also trying to um support as much as possible the mm-hmm. um my other siblings mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but then so coming to australia it was my mom and us uh for the first mm-hmm. time and um and i think for me i was i really just wanted to do something um well i i couldn't firstly i had to go to school um yeah. <laughs> um you had to go to school and you're nigerian so you had to do quite a bit of school <laughs> Yeah, well, so I started off um I, I was strongly recommended to me that I needed to go back yeah. to high school um which I refused because I I I was done with high school. Um Yeah. So you know the University of Western Sydney College um had mm-hmm. um some form of program where they provided some form of educational experience for people who didn't get their ATS scores. So 
mm-hmm. um, it was a five day a week for a year. Um, and that mm-hmm. gave me all the fun- foundational studies um, or the foundation that I really needed for mm-hmm. Australian education. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I did a lot of modeling and um, I did a lot of TV work. Uh, I think mm-hmm. for me, I, I was trying to find my place. And, yeah. um, and the first thing that I knew, and, and I'm not sure if how I was introduced to TV and modeling, but um, that, was the, that was the first thing that I, I started to do. Um, and mm-hmm. in between that, just working in call centers. Yeah. So when you started out in the modeling world, um, there's, minim- there's probably, and I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, limited representation Absolutely. of people of color. Um, so you're in this world and you're very young because, you know, at a young age, we're, we're still quite impressionable, right? And we're yeah. still sort of, we're, we're just finding our own feet, let alone trying to navigate, you know, the complexities of the world or, you know, the family dynamics of where we come from and, you know, the ecosystems that we're entering and sort of all of that. So what were your thoughts, I guess, if you can remember as a young African gorgeous model did you see yourself as sort of breaking some barriers or were you just in a space of this is what I'm doing now like I'm trying to get a sense of where were you at with the minimal representation there is of people of color even today in that industry Um, and this is an industry you're coming into you know at a very very young tender age um, when you're still developing your sense of identity and your sense of self. Yeah, I'm, I don't think I was even 18 um, when I started. So I think the first thing, Christine, is that you learn very quickly that actually I, it took me a little while to really learn. I, I'm, I was a slow learner um, that uh, uh, all about sexism and, um, and, mm-hmm. and misogyny and um, really people that can take advantage of, of you. I'll tell you a story. I went to a modeling agency and um, I got booked in to do, um, to do work. Um, and, and at that time, I, I was on the cover of like a TAFE mag- magazine. Um, that was the kind of, and, and some, um, and a bit more work um, for schools and colleges that I was paid to do. So I, I was doing okay up, up until that point. Um, so I went to get booked from a modeling agency um, in Sydney uh, and then, I um I was told to come over the weekend. They had they had the modeling gig for me, um, and I went in there, Christine, and it was me and a solo photographer, who and I was supposed to do underwear um, modeling, and I was fine to do, um, but I was I left that um, I left that session feeling incredibly scared and violated, not from anything that he he didn't touch me or anything, but it was just the um the way that he told me to do things that was scary mm-hmm. and even more scarier was several months later um i got mm-hmm. a call from a private investigator who was apparently investigating that studio um and and the photographer and apparently have spoken to several models who've been who've felt I'm not sure if he's actually what he actually did do because the investigator wouldn't say any more, but he wanted to know mm-hmm. if I was willing to p- press charges. Um, again, I just ran away from it. I just said, sorry, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm not going, I, I don't have anything. Um, mm-hmm. 
but it, it's it, it's really just um it's that um that lack of awareness or understanding that mm -hmm. ignorance at a young age you don't really mm -hmm. know what um what it what it means so you have, there are no words when you go through an experience like that no no one mm -hmm. explains that to you and when it does happen you you wonder is this have i experienced this i don't think so because you know it was it abuse or was it not? Like, uh, there was, mm -hmm. there are so many questions in your mind um, around, you know, what you've experienced and, and what it is. So, so yes, um, you go through a lot of experiences and you don't quite understand. You, you're not, um, you're really doing those things on your own. So it's difficult to really mm -hmm. um, discuss that with um, with people. Um, and then when I eventually did have. A, um, a management agency and I was booked for ads. Um, one of the ones that I was booked for that ran across Australia and um, the US and the UK was a Nikkei Bay commercial where um, we were dancing um, and I was one of, of the dancers in the ad. And, um, and after the, afterwards, my, um, my booking agent essentially um, went bankrupt. But she, um, when she called me and she, she said, um, you know, I can't really pay you. Like, like my first pay was like $10,000. And she's like, I, I can't really pay you because I made a bad deal and I can't really, I, I, I don't have the money anymore. And I said, oh, wow. And so I said, so what, what do I do? And she, and she said, well, I don't, there's nothing for you to do. I can't pay you. If I didn't get the job for you, you wouldn't have this money anyway. What? Yeah. So <laughs> Sorry. I just had to, I just kind of, my body had to absorb that shock. <laughs> <laughs> so Christine, there are so many layers of, um, and I, and I know that she wouldn't normally, she wouldn't talk to anyone else. Like she had spoken to me, but there's so many layers once you occupy these kind of spaces and, and it happens mm -hmm. still today. And I'm sure you have your own examples and experiences as well um, of people either not taking you seriously or people really trying to take as, as much advantage as, as they can of you. And of course it, it is a lot, of, there is age bias, but of course there is mm -hmm. um, an, a race element, a race element or a race bias um, to it as well. And I think you touched on something, you touched on two things there that I think as women um, and women of color, we don't talk about enough. One is uh, sexual harassment, uh, because if an act of penetration doesn't happen, people don't actually view it as yes. violation, yeah. right? That becomes the barometer. But to get to that point, there are so many points at which as women, we feel unsafe, yeah. we feel marginalized. You were in a photo shoot, you went to work, right? Firstly, why was there one lone male in that room with you, right? Why would you create an unsafe workplace like that, right? And while in that story, you were not necessarily physically violated, you were psychologically and emotionally which is just as worse if not worse sometimes because you can't even talk about it because you sit there and you think okay um what really happened here and you're struggling with it in your head 
but a massive boundary had been crossed and your rights were violated. And this happens constantly, all the time. And you're taught not to speak about it, right? You're taught not to talk about it. And the culture of silence and mm -hmm. the stigma around that comes from so many different places. I know, you know, even growing up when there used to be this ad in Zimbabwean TV that um, used to have this child, it was talking about pedophilia and how um, members of your community and your family can violate your children and how you need to protect them, right? And this ad had this child going, it's Uncle John. Like most Zimbabweans mm. will remember that ad if you were born around a certain, a certain amount of time. Mm. That ad came out to try and have this, conversation around abuse of children mm. but the abuse of women and the psychological abuse um, around our bodies around our imaging and you've got respected work coming out here now you you sit and you think about the human decency that men are offered every single day on the daily in any setting yeah. right if a man's doing an underwear um shoot right um, he, the chances are very low. He's he's being violated in the same way that you would describe it, right? And it would be interesting to get the male perspective on that. But even if it happens, the silence I think is more the issue that I'm thinking, you know, and wanting to raise here is the silence and the stigma and the shame that you felt that even when you were called and asked, do you want to yeah. do something about it? Yeah. You yeah. kind of were like, oh, um, do, 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 do I? And I don't want exactly? to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. But why, why would you feel you did something yeah. wrong yeah. in that space? Yeah. You know, and I think the work around raising awareness of all of this, yeah. and then there's the second element, which is the race element, yeah. where you're talking about you've done work and there's this expectation that as a person of color, you should have a certain gratitude. level of gratitude. I first experienced that. Um, I'll share this with you. Ages, years ago, I can't remember who said it to me, but somebody I was somewhere and a stranger um, or was it a colleague? can't even remember, but it's someone I sort of knew but knew casually right said to me oh you should you know you must be really really grateful that you're in australia they don't yeah. this person didn't know me from a bar of soap and i turned around and i said why i'm slumming it here <laughs> and you should have seen them <laughs> and they said what you know they, they didn't say what but you could tell by their face they kind of had this massive shock because they weren't expecting it yeah. And I said, why would you, why would you assume that? Yeah. Right. Why would you assume that, you know, nothing about my life. Yeah. And by the way, I am slumming it here. You know, nothing about my lifestyle from yeah. where I come from. Why would you assume this is an upgrade? Yeah. Why would you automatically assume that because I'm of African heritage? Yeah. Um, and actually that's an assumption that you've made again, because you don't know enough to know which heritage I am from. You've just made all these series of stereotypical assumptions that I was escaping my country for all of these reasons. Actually, 
I wanted to have an overseas experience. I was voluntarily looking for this. And it was not a matter of if, it was a matter of where. And I know that comes from a certain element of privilege to be able to say that, but I was in that in that position. So if you go back and you look at my history and you say that statement, to me, there's a certain element of you've made a lot of a lot of assumptions right yeah. there that you don't know. How do you deal with some of those stereotypical assumptions, being of Nigerian heritage, being, you know, this gorgeous woman who's finding her way in the world. You're in the modeling industry. You're in all sorts of places. You're married to um, a white Australian man and the prejudice and the, the, I guess the assumptions and the stereotyping that go with that. How have you navigated that space to, again, you know, the woman that's in front of me is very self-assured and very much centered in her identity, but that just didn't happen overnight. No, no. What has been that journey for you to get to that centering? Yeah, I think there was was definitely a lot of um, silencing and um, and a Mm -hmm. lot of um, keeping the peace for a long time and and for me, um, I knew that once I started to speak, that I wouldn't stop. And so I was very, I was I was fearful <laughs> for everyone around me. I was fearful that um, that um, that once I started to speak, that I couldn't be silenced anymore. I think that um, growing up in Nigeria, there's a lot of silencing of children, and you absorb that. Um, I think mostly. African people um, kind of have a place for children, and that's where they where they see and can't really are not allowed to speak. And our generations definitely breaking that. We're allowing children to express themselves, to to um, to be creative, um, to um, to grow in in ways that our our parents probably didn't. And you know, they they say that that is discipline, you know, to, you know, you respect people by, by not engaging with grownups. Um, I remember in boarding school, the saying was a lady is not heard where she's not seen. So that's, that's just a representation. Once you hear that, and, and that was just echoed throughout, you know, from a, t- for a 10 year old to, to a 16 year old graduating. And it's like, no one wants to hear your voice unless you're spoken to you're not allowed to speak so sometimes children children go through a lot of abuse um because they're not uh, they're not allowed to that there is actually no words to describe some of the some of the things that happened to them but um but also there is no um no one really to, to that you can have this sort of discussions with so i think um coming from a culture of silence um, and really absorbing and going through a lot of that, a lot of things, um, being able to kind of get to a point in my life where I feel like I can speak and I can, I can actually try and protect somebody else from going through some of the things that I've gone through. Um, I think that's some of the reasons why I've kind of in- inhabited the spaces that I have and, and chosen the careers that I have. Um, and I, I've definitely gone through, so when I finally decided that I, I've, I'd had it with the, um, the, the being treated the way that I, I was treated, I got a job at the National Australia Bank and I was there for seven mm-hmm. years and I 
started from the very from the very um, bottom in the call center, um, taking general inquiries, and you know, added a, a few more skills to my skill sets um, under my belt, and um, got really to the top of the call center chain where you only did um, where, where you got to mortgages. And once you get to mortgages, mm-hmm. um, and you're in Sydney, then you, you have to like transition to a branch or or get work through a broker. So I went to the branch world and I worked there for several years and um, and also even got the opportunity to be sent to other branches to support their sales and customer service targets. Um, and I think for me, um, number one, excellence is like the number one of, of, what, of what you do as a Nigerian. It's like I have the burden to show up every single day. And that burden is that I am a, a black female. And for me, that means that every single thing I do has to be excellent. There is no Mm -hmm. choice. I am representing not only myself, I'm representing my family, I'm representing my community, I'm representing every other black man or woman who will occupy this this space in the future. So that's the responsibility that I carry everywhere that I go, especially in the beginning um, at, at that time in my life. So everything needed to be of great quality because I was representing my whole generation. <laughs> yeah, you're representing your um, whole and, and, tribe. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so that's how I navigated those seven years. And, and I knew mm-hmm. that um, it would come to an end and I knew that that was just an opportunity um, that I had. Um, and I, you know, I, I went to uni while working there and um, completed a Master of Journalism um, degree. Uh, and then after that, we, we went away and we travelled to Nigeria, myself and my husband, who I, hadn't, who I had just married then. So that was, um, we got married in 2016 and then in 2017, we went and lived in Nigeria for a year. Um, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So... Um, we had no plans or intentions. We just sold everything and we moved to Nigeria. We, the, 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 the goal was to live there for as long as we possibly could. Um, but the moment we arrived, um, there was, I don't know if you've, if you've heard, if you heard this story, but um, the Nigerian government, oh, well, you, you probably know about um, mm-hmm. laws around LGBTQI people, which is you know, oh, yes. across the board in Africa at the moment but um, in 2017 or 16 actually when the law was implemented in Nigeria it was a seven-year jail term for for anyone who was found to show any kind of um, um, physical relationship or attraction to somebody of the of the same sex yeah Um, and 14 years if you were actually seen in a physical um, sexual relation or intimate relationship um, at the time, there was a, a known gay club in Lagos um, and Lagos, Nigeria, that mm-hmm. gay people have frequented for years. And um, on this particular night, the police decided to raid this place and they, um, they arrested several boys. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the people who were able to bail themselves, um, who had money paid the police and um, 
But the people who couldn't were arrested and um, their HIV statuses were splashed on the covers of um, the newspapers the next morning. So their families um, didn't want anything to do with them. They were homeless. They didn't have food or, or clothing or, or anything. Um, so that ha that happened on the weekend before we arrived. And we, we essentially joined the the grassroots organization and the human rights activists who were working um, with these people. And um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a ride <laughs> um, for the, the whole time. Um, my husband did a lot of writing because he's a journalist as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we try to get as much support um, for those people, um, including going to their court cases, including training and um, um, training as well um, so that they actually for for those kids for community for communities working with um every like aids activists lawyers um human rights activists really just trying to get as much um support for them um but also um i guess support for other people who are really navigating those spaces and in the end we were extremely burnt out <laughs> You came, you came back home. You came back. Now, tell me in the last few minutes, what do you actually do now? Like, what, what is your, what is your career centered on now? Yeah. So, um, I do a lot of work um, in diversity and inclusion. One of which through a not-for-profit organization called Not on My Watch, and we provide support mm -hmm. for migrant and refugee women to um, get employment, but also be able to tell their stories. So you. Diversity and inclusion is mostly told by a, a white female perspective, and there are there are a lot of there are there are a lot of intersectionality um, in inclusion, um, and there are so many of us who navigate these spaces, and we need to tell mm -hmm. our stories as well. And for me, it's really about giving that those opportunities to to other people so that they can tell their stories. Um, and we do that in, a, in so many ways. We do that through um, building the capacity of those women um, in terms of training um, programs um, and also just really simply um, how to actually use the internet um, for those purposes. And we run online virtual um, diversity and inclusion training um, and they're like yeah. cultural sensitivity, unconscious biases, my mm -hmm. favorite topic. Um, and and um, so that's it with um, Not On My Watch. And then I do a lot of work with federal government and state government um, here in Canberra um, to build the capacity of um, public policy writers and um, executive level um, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, it's really just things like as simple as, you know, how to write inclusive policies um, mm -hmm. and, you know, running trainings, that's yeah that's fine no i was pointing at myself at that point because i'm that's my background is public policy so my master's yeah. is in public policy mm -hmm. and when i was working for queensland government um yeah. a lot of the times you know you're writing these policies and you're looking and that was one of the things that really sparked a lot of my early is that government rights policies um and the people whose perspectives that they're writing for, because a lot of government's programs are ambulance at the bottom of the cliff for the area that I was working in, which mm -hmm. is the human services area, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Government is um, the provider of last resort for housing crisis, for child protection, for domestic and family violence, um, for all of those things. And that's 
the area I, that's the department that I was in. So youth unrest for all of that. So yeah. that's the that's the lens through which I was looking at uh, at policy. And mm. so if you if you juxtapose externally as to the clientele of those policies, right, they were not represented at all by any stretch Absolutely. of any imagination in yeah. any government. I don't yeah. need to do any survey. Yeah. Uh, and I can bet my my gorgeous 19-year-old son on on that, that there is so limited lived experience understanding of the people who exter- who wrote those policies, who approved those policies, who sit around cabinet and make these huge decisions that have huge impacts yeah. on people's lives and you can see that with you know the conversations that are happening right now around the referendum with the lack of actually understanding about what it is and what it Mm -hmm. means for aboriginal um people and you know you're centering voices like i was talking to some colleagues yesterday like voices are being centered based on misinformation you said a very powerful statement which is you know you have to silence yourself first and then speak. So if you don't know, I read somewhere that the measure of a leader is the ability to take a pause and a beat before you comment, right? Because that pause and the beat allows you to educate yourself and actually say, okay, do I understand the issue? Do I understand where this is coming from? Do I understand before I lend I lend my voice. And I think the intersectionality that you touched on in this space is really a space. Um, I'm getting a lot more calls around it. So, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, people are calling and people are asking. Yeah. But again, there is an assumption that I should give my advice, give my time without being paid. Yet I provide exactly the same service that a PwC, an Accenture, McKinsey, same quality of service, right? But there is an inherent assumption that I should A, provide this for free because it's a community service, right? And that there's a charity model based on this type of work, yeah. especially when it relates to women of color. And in fact, if you were the lead policy, if you were the lead um, consultant on it for Accenture, PwC, anyone, they would pay thousands of dollars. Oh, no, if I had the right name, if I had the right name (laughs) in terms of, you know, (laughs) and I'm putting right in quotes, if I was attached to one of the big four, I'd be on a retainer. Yeah. No, 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 no questions asked. And I love the big four. I talk to them, you know, all the time. So this isn't, you know, having a go at anybody. It's just stating um, that in the world that we live in, there is an assumption that you and I, with the work that we do, that there's an inherent community service associated with it. And so you will find that in the diversity, equity and inclusion space, I find there is that divide between what people will pay for and who they will pay for. Absolutely. I have lots of stories about how like really struggling to get people to to look, look at us when it's what the service we provide is, in my words, incredible um yeah. if you go through a learning and development program 
that that goes through unconscious biases um, in the mm -hmm. detail, in the level of de detail that we do, um, it's actually um, mind blowing. I feel like every organization in business needs, at a minimum, an unconscious bias training because it impacts heavily on the people that we choose to employ, the people that we choose to retain, the people who, who, who are on our merit lists for government work. Um, and, and, you know, mm -hmm. don't get me started on merit lists. Don't get me started <laughs> on cold. Um, I, I would. Like, what I'm going to do, also, it, this is a topic that I would love to bring a bunch of us working in this space to have a really good round table discussion about and just shed some light around um, just getting that basic understanding of sometimes how insulting it is to <laughs> approach people of, you know, our caliber and our profession and not approach us in the same way yeah. as you would our peers yeah. and how insulting that is. And I would love to bring you back <laughs> to definitely have a chat about that. But we're out of time. But thank you so very, very much. I have really enjoyed getting to know you, getting to know what drives you, what keeps you up at night. Thank you so much for sharing um, so openly about some of your experiences because, you know, boy, can we learn um, from that. And the more we talk, the more stigma we remove, yes. the more we, because, you know, so many times, ever since I started Sisters in Colour and it's had so many iterations over the years, people, I will get an occasional text or a call from somebody saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know that it happened to somebody else. Oh, oh my gosh, I didn't know that somebody else saw the world that way. Um, yeah. So it does have impact. It does change lives. It does raise that level of awareness. So Blossom, if people want to find you and people want to connect with the amazing work that you're doing, where can they find you? Um, I am on LinkedIn, uh, Blossom Anyimbakuli, um, or you can follow um, at Not On My Watch Oz on LinkedIn as well. They're the only socials that, I, that we use. And, Excellent. And also our website, www.notonmywatch.org.au. Um, Christine, it was really, really good to meet you as well and hear about the amazing work that you do and really looking forward to um, having further conversations with you. No, no, you're definitely coming back. You know, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a lot more to definitely unpack about um, this amazing world and this work that we're doing. From, for me, I look at my son and he's an African um, he's an African man. He's 19 now. I look at my nieces, they're mixed race, you know, and and I want the world to look better for yes. them. Yes. I, it has to look better. It yes. has to. It has to. And not just much, significantly better, you know. Yes. Our fathers went to war so we could have better, you know. So this this is our kind of war. But yes. in a different, it looks different. But for yes. me, my grandkids, my granddaughter has to have better. She, she, she has to, you know, she can't, she can't be treated this way. Like, that's not okay. That's not yes. okay, you know. And, and, and whatever little I can do to make the world a better place for her, wherever, you know, she materializes, you know, 
That's my hope and my prayer. Not today. Not today. He's 19. He's 19. I'm not putting that. I'm not manifesting that right now. Like, let's add another 10 years, 20 years onto that. You know. Yeah. Uh, but all jokes aside, Blossom, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks so much for your time, um, for your time today. Thank you. Have a great day, Christine. Excellent. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Sisters in Colour. Until next time when we bring you another amazing woman of colour and we dive deep into their world, it's goodbye from me.